Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to talk about Candela Obscura, the new role-playing game just put out by Darrington Press, the imprint for the Critical Role Group. We're going to talk about Cobalt Press's Tales of the Valiant Kickstarter, which is now live and launched. I'm going to talk about my part in it. We're going to talk about a, a lot of things going on with that Kickstarter. There is the new price changes for the Wizards of the Coast books. Prepare yourself for an old man to stand on his front lawn yelling up at the clouds about this. But I have one particular angle that I, that I want to take about the recent price change for Wizards of the Coast books and why what exactly I'm particularly miffed about. And we're going to cover more questions from the Sly Flourish Patreon Q&A for May 2023 all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in role-playing games. This show, like all of the work that I do, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to a dedicated Discord server and the monthly Q&A, the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a whole bunch of exclusive adventures, and video previews, and much, much more. It is a really good deal to become a patron of Sly Flourish. You get a lot of really good stuff for it, but most importantly, you help me put on shows like this to the patrons of Sly Flourish. Thank you so much for your support. Things are really interesting in the RPG world these days. And so Candela Obscura was just put out by Darrington Press. Darrington Press is the press arm of the Critical Role Empire, which really is, I guess when you have an Amazon show, you're pretty much an empire. Great big thing. And what's really interesting, so so Candle Obscura is, I and mean, you can go download it. There is a link in the show notes where you can go, where you can go pick it up from Darrington Press. They talk all about what what they've got, and it is one of two new role playing games that Darrington Press is putting out. The other one is called Daggerheart. Daggerheart isn't out yet. Daggerheart looks like it's going to be more of your long term campaign sort of role-playing game, where Candle Obscura is specifically designed for short form episodes of of a show short form small number of sessions focused around an area it is candle obscura seems to be heavily influenced by games like blades in the dark the mechanics from it are heavily uh, heavily influenced by games like blades by blades in the dark it is a d6 dice pool game it uses what they refer to as the illuminated worlds d6 dice pool system so i have a feeling that candela obscura is just one theme that is using the same underlying system which is really a kind of a smart way to go you kind of have your lightweight story focused system that where the mechanics are very well understood and then you run different scenarios different themes and i think what darrington press doing is really really smart which is they're going to put out a role-playing game candela obscura that anybody can buy and then doing this very high visible show where they're running it and in this case like even if you're not playing the game like one, this is one of the interesting things I think about streaming where a lot of people of, of a certain age like myself tend to forget when we go like, well, I don't watch, I don't watch people play games online. I don't like to watch people on streaming. And a lot of times it's because I don't have any time. That's a fair, yeah, that's a fair assessment. What I think sometimes gets missed when we're talking about watching streaming games is that the difference between you watching a streaming game and you playing in the game is isn't really that much because when you when you figure the fact that you're sitting at a table with six other people playing the game the amount of time and influence that you have in that game is actually relatively small you don't the focus of the whole game you don't get to play the whole time you're watching a lot of other people do a lot of stuff so probably i'm gonna i'm making up a, a, a thing but like five sixth of the amount of time that you're spending at a role-playing game is pretty much the same as what you get when you're watching a streaming game Right. So I think a lot of people like the joy of being able to go into YouTube or go into Twitch or whatever and watch a streaming game. Their participation is like five sixths of the same of what you would get in a normal role playing game, which means there's a lot of joy that a lot of people are getting. And obviously, it's true because look, the numbers are very high for a lot of streaming games for the bigger streaming games. Numbers are very high. Numbers tail off very quickly when you when you look at smaller streaming games. So the idea that they could put out a product that you could go buy so you can understand the rules and you understand how it plays and you can sit there and really look at it, look at the character sheets and see it. While you're watching them play the game, that's really cool. That's a neat idea. And I think it's going to work out. I, I mean, predictions are BS, of course, but it feels like that should work out well for them because I think a lot of people might pick up the game, even if they don't play it, just because they want to understand the system that they're watching when they watch the show online. And there are people who will play it. So there are people who will go and they'll, they'll pick it up and they might run it because they think it's a really cool system. So that's a really great product line. And that idea of daring to press kind of sitting between these two realms is really interesting. The other thing, and, and you should go go get it. So there's a free quick start guide. You can All you do is you give them your email address 
and you get the whole quick start guide. It's beautiful, really well presented, really well done, cool looking system, familiar system if you're used to things like Powered by the Apocalypse or Blades in the Dark or, or Forge in the Dark. You can really get a good a good understanding of this. And why wouldn't you go pick it up and take a look at it? It looks really cool. And look at that art. That art is really neat. But the other the other thing that kind of is interesting about this is this is another case of a company who has basically said we need to make sure that our enterprise is independent of what any other company is going to do. And I think this really happened after, I don't, I don't want to just keep bringing up the OGL thing, but I think it was one of the most monumental things that's happened in role-playing games in 30 years. I think it was a really big factor and it's going to have a permanent effect on role-playing games. And one of the effects that it is having right now is many companies are saying, we need to make sure that we control our own fate. And Darrington Press and Critical Role is one of those. And look how big they are, right? Now, they already had a press. They already put up books like Taldorai Reborn, which I think is one of the best source books I've ever seen. Like, this is a fantastic source book that they put out from that from that imprint. But now they're doing their own role-playing games. And now they're putting out, like, Candle Obscura and the Illuminated World's lightweight system that's very story-focused system for short-term games. And then there's Daggerheart. And Daggerheart, I think, is going to be bigger and richer. We'll have to see what it looks like. And is how D&D is it? How much like D&D is it? But I don't think anybody will be surprised if Critical Role says for our next season's game and the next sessions of games that we're going to use, we're going to be using Illuminated Worlds and we're going to be using your heart, right? Why wouldn't they use their own systems for their own show? So they are kind of going their own way. What does that mean for Wizards of the Coast? I don't think it means as much as we think it might. I know that we have put a lot and Wizards of the Coast has put a lot of energy on the idea that shows like Critical Role have really brought D&D to a lot of people and it has, but I don't think you're going to see this like steep decline the minute that people, the minute Critical Role switches over to another system. I doubt we're going to see like a major impact in, in like the sales of D&D or the popularity of D&D or anything like that. But I think it's also very interesting to look at companies. We see at MCDM, Matt Colville's company, they're making their own role-playing game. Tales of the Valiant, which we're about to talk about, they're making their own role-playing game. Darrington Press and Critical Role are making their own role-playing game. Everybody wants control over their own fate. And, they, and what the OGL showed us, what that whole OGL fiasco showed us, is you can't trust wizards. You just can't. So you can't trust wizards to do what's right for role-playing games for everybody. You can trust wizards maybe to act on their own benefit. I'm not so sure that they do all the time. I think sometimes they do things that aren't necessarily beneficial to even themselves, much less everybody else. But that's a whole separate topic. But I do feel like everybody else is saying we need to make sure that our world can run on its own. I do this, right? I look at like the future of the work that I'm doing and say, how do I make sure that the future of the work that I'm doing can survive whatever Wizards of the Coast decides to do or any other company, right? No, no single company should be in charge because they don't have to be because of this kind of game. I think this strengthens the role-playing community overall. There's a risk that it could shatter the RPG community or separate. Shatter is probably a strong word, but separate it a little bit. And now you have these pockets and fiefdoms for different groups that are running different things. Maybe. We'll see. But I think if it's helping role-playing games, it's helping role-playing games. Because the investment is not so great that we can't switch from one to the other when we find one that we like. So... Really interesting. Check out Candle Obscura by Darrington Press. You can find a link down in the show notes below, but probably you've already heard about it. Maybe you've already downloaded it. So you can check that out. But really neat. And I think what it means for this industry is also is also really, really interesting. Kobold Press has released the Tales of the Valiant Kickstarter. Tales of the Valiant is underneath their their the project they, they refer to as Project Black Flag, which fired up, that's right, during the OGL, during the OGL uh, 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 catastrophe issue whatever you want to call it event you know event as though like a solar flare that wipes out all electronics is an event something like that so they have launched the kickstarter for tales of the valiant tales of the valiant is a two book project a player guide and a monster manual that is a full functioning 5e variant written by the same people who have done Toma Beasts, 1, 2, and 3, Creature Codex, Empire of the Ghouls, Scarlet Citadel. Cobalt Press is probably the largest publisher of 5e, or most popular publisher of 5e content outside of Wizards of the Coast. They are, it's a great big company doing a lot of big stuff. I mean, great big is relative, like they don't have an office, right? But they have a bunch of people working on it. But they have produced a lot of material that is well-loved, well-loved by people like me. Now, during this conversation, I need to make something very clear, which is I have a big bias for Cobalt Press. I've worked with them numerous times. I like their work. I'm a fan of their studio, and I've written a lot of material for them, including I am one of a number of designers that are listed for Tales of Valiant for some work that I had done for them. And I can talk a little bit about that. I talked to Cobalt Press. They said, yep, no problem. We absolutely want to be open and, and, and candid about about the work that we do. So feel free to talk to them about the work that you did. And I plan to. 
which is I was tapped by them to do the encounter building guidelines for the monster book. If you are familiar with me and my work, you can probably get a good idea of what kind of encounter building guidelines I built for them. But I will tell you, it was really interesting being in a different seat to write about encounter building guidelines for a full system. And the reason why is that all of the times that I've written about encounter building for 5e, which I did on my blog for many years, I wrote it in in the Lazy DMs workbook. I wrote in Lazy DMs companion. I've talked about Forge of Foes. We have a bunch of stuff in there. And in all of those cases, they stick onto the existing understanding of what 5e does. In all of those circumstances, I'm, I'm coming to it with a perspective of you already know how D&D works. You know how 5e works. You've looked at other systems. Here's an alternative way. But in the case of Tales of the Valiant, I'm not offering an alternative way to do encounter building. I'm offering the only way that is published in these books. So when I was looking at what I was writing, I, I from right, luckily, I learned this right away before he had even really started. I was like, I need to change my perspective on what I'm writing, because in this case, I am writing an instruction manual for how to build encounters for this game. And it is the only one. It's the only instructions for this game that you're going to have initially. Maybe somebody else will say, Mike J. Sockton, his are terrible and you should use these. But generally speaking, speaking that you know it's that way so i really wanted to make it like a step-by-step approach what approach should you take when you're looking at it what does it do what does it not do where does it break down where does it work well and so it's i think a much more refined version of the encounter building guidelines it's definitely based on the same ideas as the lazy the lazy rpg benchmark or the lazy dnd lazy dnd benchmark lazy encounter benchmark for 5e so if you're familiar with the lazy encounter benchmark this is going to come as no surprise and it, it, but it breaks it down it has like a table that shows you like depending on the number of characters and depending on the the level the average character level how many crs do you get and what's the maximum and minimum crs that are going to be valuable there's a there's a whole section that talks about like what challenge rating even means there's a bunch of different topics where i talk about what are different kinds of encounters that you might want to run whether it's a big boss whether it's a few lieutenants whether it's like an equal sized horde or whether it's a big pile of monsters or waves of combat i talk about all those so i think it's a really good i was very happy with what i sent i actually just because it's been a couple months since i wrote it i just did a quick skim through of what i had sent in and i talked to celeste who's the lead designer of this she liked what i had written so i don't think i should see a tremendous change i'm sure there'll be changes hopefully i I expect changes for the better but i don't think there's going to be a big shift in it and i was really happy with what i wrote so i think that the encounter building guidelines i'm very happy with that and i think i hope you will like them too in tales of the valiant So Kickstarter is doing well, 6,000 backers, 26 days to go, two big books. If you want both physical books, it's a hundred bucks. If you want both physical and PDFs, it's a hundred bucks, which is a pretty reasonable amount. So the thing is like $50 a book and you're getting the PDF and the physical book together. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good deal. If you want the entire PDF collection, that's 50 bucks. So 25 ish dollars. So again, you know. If you if, if you can live with physical books, if you're okay with physical physical books, it's the way to go. I think otherwise it's like for either one of the books, the player guide or the monster book, it's sixty dollars, which includes the PDF and the physical physical book. But it feels like to me the oh a bunch of VTT licenses for it. But it feels to me like the best deal is the the two books set plus the PDFs. You get a you get both books. I think you get a slipcase, right? You get a hardcover slipcase for it. PDFs of both books and all you know a bunch of bunch of stretch goals and things like that. So that that feels like the you know if you're looking for like that to maximize the dollar, and I know it's a hundred bucks. And and we're gonna get into like should you buy it or not. I want to I want to talk about this. This is an important thing to talk about. But I think if you're planning on getting it. It seems like the one that's really like the, the, the one you ought to grab that's getting the maximum amount of material for the dollar spent is probably the $99 two book set with the PDFs. I, I back the 165. I, I think it's cool. And it's got my name in it. So of course I'm going to go a little special and I love Cobalt Press and blah, 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 blah. So I got the collector's limited edition two book set that's got the, like the collector cover. I thought that looked cool. So I want to go with that because it's like the special edition version. But I did put my money in this. So even though I have worked for them, I, I was paid for the work that I did for the encounter building stuff, but I also said yeah but i want to i'm gonna back it with my own actual money too so i'm not you know i didn't get a free backing i'm not getting free copies i might get a free copy they might send me one because i'm a contributor but i'm buying it anyway i'll give away my free copy and i'll keep the ones that i bought so there's what's what's interesting about tales of Valiant. so you can you can download there they've got a 63 page preview that shows what's in here 
there is no reason not to go get it. And by the way, they follow the Mike Shea rule of a single click gets you the preview. You don't have to do anything too special to get it. You don't have to go through a checkout process. The things that drive me bananas are when you make me go through your checkout process, including putting in payment information for a zero cost PDF that you're trying to sell me on your stupid Kickstarter. Don't do that. They didn't do that. They put it out here. You can just one click download the 65 page preview. Plus, if you've been following this at all, you've seen the playtest documents that have been coming out. There are a bunch of different playtest documents have been coming out from Cobalt Press showing what they're doing. And whether that, you know, whatever you feel about those playtest documents, some people really like them, some don't. That's cool. You at least are getting a view of what they're going to do. You're getting a view of what they're thinking and what direction that they're going. And if you look at those, and you're like, oh, not for me, then it's probably not for you. You can also look at the preview and say, do you like what you're seeing in the preview or not? And if you go, eh, not for me, you know. So it's really useful to at least go take a look at the preview if you're interested at all. If you're not interested, I don't know why you're listening to this. Go skip to the next part of the show. But if you are interested, you can see a lot of what they're doing. What's the direction that they're taking? What does their art direction look like? I think the the, the book looks great. Like the, the, pay, the page layout and everything really looks good. Talks about how to do their ability scores. You know, talks about how to build levels. Offers a few kind of levels to show how they work you know how to play the game the i think the whole luck system is in here which is kind of neat so you know different class stuff and then it gets into a handful of monsters that it has as well so from this one preview you can get a good idea of the kind of stuff that you're going to get in in the main books spell casting they talk about the rings they offer up some you know different kinds of spells and i expect you're going to see some kind of fun a lot of spells that are from like the SRD, but probably a few kind of unique Cobalt Pressy sort of spells that they might have they might pull out of Deep Magic and everything like that. We'll see, but but pretty neat stuff. And again, you know, monsters and the stat blocks for monsters and what those are going to look like. They just put out their monster play test recently, so you can you can get a view. I think I think the monsters that are in here. I think there's more that were out in the play test so you can see how they do it. And you can take a look at what their simplified stat block is like. One interesting thing they did is they went back to having dice directly next to the monster damage. So originally they were pushing very heavily for static monster damage. I guess there was a big pushback. I'm not surprised that there was a big pushback for no, you should really go ahead and add your, you know, go ahead and add your dice equation next to the damage because people use that and i'm not surprised i'm i'm a big believer in static monster damage my new approach is really static monster damage minus three plus one d6 gives just a little bit of variance but i only ever have to roll a six-sided die that's my lazy technique but i've done polls on this and i know that 90 percent of gms roll the monster damage so I, i'm i'm i am not sad i am not surprised i think it's i think it's totally fine so i love the the art is really cool and i think like one reason if there's one argument about like well why get it I mean, art is a big one and cool art is, is cool art, right? And I really, I really like this stuff. So if you're like, oh, I don't really think the game is that different. Yeah, but the art's really cool. So I like this. The, the Hellhound looks really fun. And the Atiag, look at the Atiag. Look, it's a little eye, little cute eye sticking up there. So neat stuff. So if you want to check out the preview, I highly recommend checking out the preview. But I want to talk about something else with, with Tales of the Valiant because I saw this, you know, I, I try to keep my ear out. I try to listen to what people are saying. And one of the things are like, you know, a lot of people are like, why should I get this? Like, what is in it for me? And you're like, you know, and that's a reasonable question. I, I, I'm hearing this question now more than I hear it with other products that Cobalt Press has put out and other Kickstarters and things like that. And that's because it is a product that's so firmly in the lane of a product we already mostly have, which is the 2014 Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, Monster Manual. That there's this question of what is this doing? This, this has to do something pretty significantly different and better for me to want to drop a hundred bucks on it. And maybe it's not even just a hundred bucks. Maybe it's also the investment of like, why would I even run this at my table? If my players are already running 5e, why push them to this new version? What is, what is it that this one has that makes it unique enough? And for some people, what they have, things like luck system or things like the way they do ability scores or the separation of species and heritage, maybe because, or whatever they're calling it, lineage and heritage, maybe like that's not enough. And you're like, all these things that they are changing, the doom cycle for monsters, the, the simplified monster stat blocks, maybe that's not enough for you. And it's worth considering. And that's why it's good that they have a preview so you can kind of check that stuff out. But I was trying to get my head around it to kind of figure out like why, what are some arguments to buy this and then what are some reasons you might want to not buy it what are some reasons you might not want to back it and i was thinking about this over the past couple days and i and i came up with a few that i want to offer i don't think this is fully 
don't think there's like all of them, right? It's the kind of the big ones that come to my mind and people I talk to. And one is, you you know, you probably should back it if you like Cobalt Press as a studio and you like the design work they do. I do. I adore Cobalt Press. I think they're great. I love the work that they do. So for me, it was a no brainer, but also I buy everything. So me backing isn't necessarily a good indicator. One should back it because I back more than 200 Kickstarters. So I back everything. But I like Cobalt Press. There was no way I wasn't going to pick this up. Also, my name's in it, but that's different. So that's one reason. Do you like the idea of simplified monster stat blocks? And really, it's not even just simplified monster stat blocks. It's also like a simplified character creation thing. I'll tell you, I, I just, I had, a char- I had a player show up at my game on Wednesday that I wasn't expecting. It was a daughter of one of the other players. And I was like, why don't you come and play? Right. She was like, oh, I was just going to come and watch. And I'm like, do you want to play? Like we have a seat free. We, we, we only have four people, so you can be a fifth and no problem. She's like, sure. She's played before. So I was like, let me whip you up a character. And, and I was able to use like D&D Beyond to whip up a quick rogue. And the part that I got stuck on were the stupid ability scores. The whole idea of like doing a mixture of point by plus your race bonus, but you can modify the race bonus. And then is other, I was like, oh, what a hassle. The idea that Cobra Press just packs it all together. There is no... You know, there's there's the, the the point by system already has racial bonuses built in it means it's so much faster to do ability scores in Tales of the Valiant than it is in Vanilla 5e. So it's little simplifications like that's just an example. But there's little simplifications like that that might make you say, like, I like how it has simplified and streamlined character creation and monster building. They're paying attention to this. And this one handles it better than the 2014 one does. Do you want a fresh take on classes and character mechanics, right? There's new things in here. Talents instead of feats, heritage and lineage splits, different approaches for the subclasses that are there. There's a lot of different ways. And maybe you look at it and say, it's really not different enough, okay? But if you look at it and you're like, I want to try some new stuff out. And maybe you're okay with like trying some of this stuff out and maybe running it in parallel because I'm pretty sure you could. You could you could take a character that was built with Tales of the Valiant and probably run it in a normal game if you wanted. We'll see. There's, there's this also idea of like staying within, I don't, I don't have it in my my list here but staying inside the ecosystem so there's an idea of like staying inside the ecosystem of cobalt press which is if you're running a midgard game maybe you're running empire of the ghouls like i am maybe you're running other cobalt press stuff it'd be kind of neat if you're including like tome of heroes or you're including tome of beast monsters or you're including vault of magic or deep magic spells there's this idea that like you could just stay all within cobalt press all of the design ethos is around the same thing all of it is well aware of the other stuff that the same company has put out and and you can kind of have this fun theme where it feels like a different variant of 5e that that where everything feels different because of different campaign different monsters different setting but still has the same 5e group with it i think that that could be an if that if that if that grabs you that idea of staying all within one company's ecosystem while you're playing your campaign or everything now you can you can do so so I think that that's important. Then a big one, which is the, the protest vote, right? That in this case, it's you want to keep playing 5e. You like 5e, you like 5e D&D, but you don't want to support Wizards of the Coast anymore. I don't, I'm not a holder of this philosophy. I still support Wizards of the Coast. I mean, support, I don't know. I have bought books from Wizards of the Coast. Although I don't think I've bought one since the OGL, but I am not ready to throw them out. And, and when they put out a book that I'm interested in, I'm still going to buy that book. I want to treat Wizards of the Coast like I treat any other studio. But there are definitely people out there after the whole, certainly after the OGL incident, then there's the whole Pinkerton you know, thing that happened. There's a bunch of stuff that's happened with Wizards of the Coast where people look at them and are narrowing their eyes and they're not happy with the company. But you can still want to play 5e. I met people at a convention recently who were like, I'm done with 5e. I'm done with D&D. I don't like it. And I'm going to go play whatever, you know, some totally other system. And I was like, well, you know, 5e is not really D&D anymore. And they're like, well, and I'm like, it isn't. I I think 5e is now like Lennox. It's like its own platform and you can have different flavors of Lennox. This is a different flavor of Lennox, right? If you don't like Ubuntu and you want to use whatever some other variant of Linux now you can play 5e feels like D&D but isn't D&D so if you if that matters to you if you're like if you really don't want to support Wizards of the Coast anymore but you still like 5e then this might this I, I think they they're I think Wizard I think Cobalt Press is kind of banking on that that was the whole black flag if you read their initial blog posts about it they were saying this uh, so I think that that really matters and you want to see some newer ideas like luck so if you want to treat Tales of the Valiant and stuff in Tales of the Valiant as sort of like a set of house rules for 5e. This is an opportunity to do so. Maybe you don't use all of it. Maybe you stick with D&D Beyond and D&D stuff, but you want to just bring a couple of ideas over that you like. This is an opportunity to bring some ideas that you like over from another system that's also compatible and bring it into your system. So again, sort of treating each of these variants of 5e like a set of house rules. I've done so by using Monstrous Menagerie and ideas from Level Up Advanced 5e in my game. I think I will certainly be able to do so with Tales of, Tales of the Valiant as well. 
So one of the interesting things is about what this means for Cobol Press and why Cobol Press in particular would want to do this. It doesn't matter so much for us as GMs. It doesn't matter for us as customers. It doesn't matter so much for us who want to play the game. But it is kind of an interesting thing to think about, which it really is it feels like it's in Cobol Press best interest to put out a set of books like this, even knowing that some people are just not going to be interested because they feel they already have it, just so that just like Critical Role, they control their own destiny. Now, Cobol Press has invested very heavily in 5e. They've put out many, many dozens slash hundreds of books that are for 5e. So unlike uh, unlike Darrington Press, who decided they're going to go with two totally different systems, which is fine, and probably then you have a clear differentiator in what those systems are. Even among their two systems, there's a big differentiator. Cobol Press definitely has an advantage in making a 5e-based system so that all of their previous stuff is compatible. But this gives them the opportunity with one Kickstarter and two books to now have an entire system that all of their previous books, they've suddenly filled this one gap that they've been missing. And now as a company, all of their products are self-contained. They don't have to trust anybody else. They don't have to trust where they go. They now have their own system that they can build against. And that system is compatible with the most popular system on the planet. So there's a good reason for them to do it. That doesn't necessarily mean you should or should not put your money there. But it's an interesting thing that like if, if the argument is, well, Cobalt Press shouldn't have done this, I think I, I would disagree with that. I think I think Cobalt Press definitely should have done this. And it makes sense that they're doing it because now, just like Darrington Press, just like MCDM, just like many other companies, they control their own destiny. They have their own system, their, their own their own whole ecosystem. That isn't dependent upon any company, particularly Wizards of the Coast anymore. So I think that's one good reason why they did it. That doesn't really mean you need to buy it or doesn't really mean you shouldn't buy it. But I think it's an important consideration when we look at, at, at Tales of the Valley and why they do it. So why might you want to pass on this? And again, I've had people that are like, I'm not sure I want to get this. And I, I'm saying there probably are reasons not to. There are probably good reasons and good people in good positions where you don't necessarily want to buy it. So one is you're strapped for cash. A hundred bucks these days. And like, I don't know, here in America, but I think whatever we're doing has a bad tendency of trailing downhill. Economics are in a really weird spot in America right now. And you might be strapped for cash or you might be worried that look that that hundred bucks. I don't know where that hundred bucks might be or where I might need that in a month. Do I really want to drop a hundred bucks on this thing? If the hundred dollars is a lot of money for you and it's and it's really important for you. I mean, a hundred dollars is a lot of money. But if it's something that you feel like, you know, you'd have to stretch to support, probably don't get it. Because guess what? You're probably going to be able to get a lot of the material as as OGL material in other places. It, it, it will probably be on sale in a year or a couple of years. So, you know, there are there are reasons why if, if, the, if the money's hard for you, you don't feel like you have to buy it. That's definitely another one. Another big one is you're already happy with 5e, right? Let's say you don't have a problem running D&D. You're, you're not, you're not, you know, you know, waving the black flag against Wizards of the Coast or you already own the books and you're like, well, I'm not going to buy a new book, but I'm still going to play the old ones, which is totally fine. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're happy with 5e, you're happy with 5e. If you're already happy, if your players are happy, then do you, do you really need this? Probably not. I mean, it's still 5e. You know, it's got some interesting ideas. Is it $100 worth of new ideas? You kind of have to decide if that's if it's worth it to you or not. But if you're generally happy with 5e and if your players are happy with 5e and everything's running fine, I mean, this is the whole D&D problem, right? A lot of people have said the problem with D&D as a business is that you sell a product once and they never, you don't need to buy anything anymore. That you could have the Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, Monster Manual, and you could probably run campaigns for the rest of your life and never buy another book. And that's like a business issue with D&D that has been described back in the 70s and 80s. That's a business problem that's been around for 50 years. And it's true now. If you're happy with it, you're happy with it. You don't need to pick it up. If you look at it and you don't see anything that particularly grabs you, you're like, yeah, the monster design is simple, but I don't really care. Or yeah, I see the heavy of luck or ancestries and the idea of lineage and, and lineage and heritage. I don't really care. The idea, you know, all these different things that you see where they're making these improvements or making these changes, if they don't really grab you or feel like I, I, Tasha's is fine, like Tasha's with their separation of ability scores is fine, then who cares, right? If you read it and it's not grabbing you, it's not grabbing you. You don't have to buy it. Another one is if you, if you, I was talking about being inside of the ecosystem. The other one is maybe your ecosystem is in a whole other thing. Maybe you bought a whole lot of material in D&D Beyond or yeah, D&D Beyond, right? You've got all your stuff in D&D Beyond. You've paid a lot of money for it there. You're able to share it with your friends. They like the D&D Beyond tool and you use that. Well, guess what? This isn't going to be in D&D Beyond. 
So if you're dependent upon DD Beyond, I've talked about the dangers and issues of being dependent upon DD Beyond. But if you're dependent on DD Beyond, that is an issue, right? And maybe you don't want to pick it up because of that, because of these other ecosystems. There are some other considerations with this too, which is Level Up Advanced 5e already exists. This is the third variant of 5e that already exists that already has a bunch of big books. Maybe you've already invested heavily in Level Up Advanced 5e. You're like, do I need another system? So now it's not just competing with D&D or the 2014 version of D&D, it's competing with other variants as well, like Level Up Advanced 5e. So that's a question for you. And I think we're going to see this like, oh, I like Level Up Advanced 5e. Oh, I like Tales of Valiant. Oh, I like the 2014 version. Or I'm going to, you know, whatever, whatever you're going to go, whatever you're going to do. One of them is it's not an opinionated RPG. They have made it a general view of 5e. I was talking about this in the Discord, the SciFlourish Discord server, which you can get by being a patron of SciFlourish. And we were talking about the idea of like, would it, and is like, woulda, coulda, shoulda, doesn't really matter. Like what they could have done kind of doesn't matter, but let's just for thought exercise, just live with, work with me for a minute here. What if they had said that this is actually a Midgard role-playing game that is set in Midgard, that its goal is to build, take 5e, customize it for Midgard and build it around Midgard. And also we're going to customize it in other ways to either like simplify the gameplay mechanics, or we're going to have subclasses and monsters and everything that are focused around this particular region of the world and build it that way. That, you know, I refer to this as like an opinionated RPG. It's an RPG that's going in one particular direction. It has a, instead of being a general use RPG, it's an RPG that's focused on one thing. Well, they might do worse than they did now because people are saying, oh, but I would, if, if it was a pure Midgard focus game, I don't play in Midgard and I don't really care. I, I have my own campaign world. And you, sure, you could say like, well, you can use this. But I, I think of it like 13th Age, where 13th Age has the, 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 the Dragon Empire in it, right? It's got its own setting built into 13th Age. Shadow of the Demon Lord has its own setting built into Shadow of the Demon Lord. These, these campaign books, these books, Blades in the Dark has Duskfall. You know, they have a world already built, baked into their RPG, which kind of narrows their focus a little bit because you kind of want to play in the world that's built the game. Numenera, same way. Like, granted, Cypher System is now a separate system. And you can buy a separate Cypher System book. But Numenera was built with the world and the system bound together. You know, I, I'm not saying that would have been a better thing to do. I really don't know. And, and I think, I don't know even if, if it's necessarily better for us because I already have a Midgard book. I already have that stuff, but it would be interesting. Uh, it would be kind of interesting to see what like it's and recognize that it isn't an opinionated RPG. It is trying to be a general purpose RPG that people could pick up just like they'd be picking up the 2014 books, which is an interesting take. Then the other one, which is the big variable is the 2024 books are coming out only a few months after tales of the Valiant comes out. So if you like what you've seen with the playtest for D&D and Wizards of the Coast take on this, there's that question of, do you think the Tales of the Valiant monster book is going to be better than the new monster manual? Are you going to buy both? Which one are you going to use? You know that the overlap between the two is going to be like 80%, right? The monsters are going to be like 80%. So, you know, that, that can be a real, that can be a real issue. So... That's a big question, right? What what does the 2024 book? And again, unless you're like me and you're like, I don't care, I'm buying everything, right? I'm just running around like Brewster's Millions, just buying buying whatever RPG products come out. That, you know, if you're if you're buying if you if you, you know, only want to pick up one, you're going to have to ask yourself, well which one are you going to pick up? Or should you pick up any? We were just here in the Discord chat, people or the Twitch chat, people were saying like I'm not buying 2024, I'm not interested. Okay. Cool. Don't don't buy don't buy the 2024. Maybe you want to buy this instead. But it's a consideration. Like I talked before about how happy I was that we're going to see all of these new systems that are out there. But now I'm kind of wondering that like, but which one do you recommend to people? Like which one do you say like, oh, you're going to want to buy that system over this system? Do you want Tales of the Valiant, 2020, 2014 D&D, 2024 D&D, or Level Up Advanced 5e, or Cubicle 7. Like, we're going to have all of these variants of 5e, and we're going to have to kind of pick and then and decide not just which ones we buy, but which ones we bring to our table and actually run. So those are all the considerations. Regardless of that, I'm very excited to see Tales of the Valiant. I'm honestly, I'm very proud. I was very interested and excited to be a part of it. I'm glad to put my encounter building rules in there, and I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. I backed it. I love what they do. And yeah, so so definitely take a look at it. At least look at the preview and see what see what's going on in the preview. And then ask these kind of questions to yourself and ask yourself, is there any, are there any kind of other questions that you have that kind of make you decide whether or not you think it's the kind of thing that you want to back? Okay, it's time to prepare for a Sly Flourish rant. 
This really is, I have now reached a certain age and this really is a little bit of me going out onto my front lawn and yelling at the clouds and talking about the days when I remember that you could get a coffee for four cents, right? So I'm going to complain a little bit, but I have a particular angle on my complaint that I want to, that I wanted to highlight, or I wouldn't bother to talk about it at all. So it came out this past week that Wizards of the Coast is going to be increasing the prices of their books, that typically the books that were $49.95 are now going to cost $59.95. They are also doing bundles that you can get on like the Wizards of the Coast web store. And this is particularly interesting. Get them on Amazon.com that include the D&D Beyond price or about, I think, or the D&D Beyond book for, I think, 10 bucks more. But if you pre-order them, you essentially get the D&D Beyond unlock at the same rate that you would be paying for the physical book, which is $59.99. I think I've got that about right. But essentially, you're talking about a 20% price increase on the books. And they're starting that they're starting with Glory of the Giants, the book that's coming out in in August, which is a, a giant, a giant focus book similar to your Fizzbands, your Fizzbands giant. So it is interesting that they are now having kind of a new pricing, not not just a pricing model of increasing the prices, but also new ways that they are selling them. It's the first time that I've seen them sell coupons to get it on DD Beyond on Amazon.com. That whole thing is actually quite a quite a coup. That's a real that's a a big angle that I think could work out well for them. And the idea that they can do pre-orders at lower prices on Amazon that include the physical book plus the coupon to unlock it in DD Beyond, that's also a, a, a good deal. I, that, I think that's I think that that's a, a good angle for expanding how they're able to sell this stuff. And to be straight, I'm not too upset about the price increase. I, yeah, it's a 20% price increase. When and even in our worst days in these in, in the days of inflation that we've had, the inflation has been about 10%. So the idea that it's it's jumping up 20%, you're like, yeah, but it's 10 bucks. And hopefully it means that they they increase these prices right by 10 bucks and then they don't do it for years to come. I don't think I buy the whole argument like wizards saying, cause like, this is one where like, you're talking out of two sides of your mouth. You talk to your shareholders and you say one thing, you talk to your customers, you say something completely different. So on the D and D beyond community blog, they have a new post that says that they want to be trans clearly and transparently our players. We've kept the prices book stable. Unfortunately, with the cost of goods and shipping continually increasing, we finally had to make the decision to increase the price of our new books committed to creating high quality content, except then what do they sell their shareholders? Oh, prices are up. We're doing great. Like we're selling tons of stuff and the, price, the profits are going up 20%. Even during the OGL fiasco, the price went up like, or the, the, the value to shareholders went up by a big percentage. And also we're more interested in monetizing D&D, right? We heard the vice president of Wizards of the Coast, of the vice president of D&D saying we want to monetize D&D. And they're like, oh, we're so, you know, goods of, the price of goods and shipping are continually increasing and we finally have to increase the prices. And you're like, grr, right? And, and then this is also kind of chaps my ass is in the same time in the same events they were talking about so many D&D books are coming in 2024 that no printing company can handle them all there's outstripping the capacity of printing companies to make books which that you know what that's called economy of scale that means it's cheaper for you to produce that many books the the, the more books you produce the cheaper they are which means probably the price to make their books has gone down not up and the idea that they have to increase the prices in order to keep up with the demand a i'm printing books and i can tell you that my book price is about the same for me printing a book now that it was three years ago but now this idea that like you know, we have to increase the price of their books. I don't, you know, maybe they do, right? Maybe they're, I don't know, they're, the way they print, they print their books in the U.S., printing in the U.S. can definitely get expensive. But there feels like you, you say like three different things that all contradict each other. You say, well, we have to increase books because all the prices have gone up. Also, we have record-setting profits and more people are playing D&D than ever. And our shareholders are really good. And we have to monetize D&D more. And, oh, we're outstripping our printer's capacity to print because we print so many books. Those are all contradictory statements. Those are all things that, like, you should be able to sell books for less because you're making more of them that's how that works economy of scale sound like this right it feels like it's less but even setting that aside setting aside that stuff setting aside the idea that the prices went up and that you know but it doesn't feel like they should go up i think it's really and, and i really i believe this i think it's simply like every company in america is like oh inflation they're using inflation as an excuse to raise prices in order to get better value that's absolutely happening across the board in many many different corporations and it's happening here too why are they raising prices because they can they're raising prices because we're seeing prices raise everywhere else. And if they're raising everywhere else, we'll just go, oh, it's just inflation. I can understand why the price has gone up. Does it mean they haven't? No. 
I mean, it doesn't mean that their prices haven't gone up, maybe, because their prices might be going up depending on what they're doing. But I don't think they're just like trying to keep up with the times. I think they're seeing an opportunity to raise the price and they're doing it. So yeah, that that's definitely, you know, that that to me, that to me bothers me. But here's where I really get a bug up my butt about it. It's not about the price. The price isn't the issue for me. The issue is the books are significantly smaller. The books are just smaller. Eberron came out three years ago. Eberron is a 320 page book for for 50 bucks, 49.99. 320 page book with a smaller font size than the newer books that they're putting out now, which means the, the I don't know, I, I, you know, I didn't do a word count on it, but I can tell you there's way more words in the Eberron book than there would be in another 320 page book that are using their new font size. The font size definitely went up. There's fewer words per book than there were before. And the Eberron book was already really big. Van Richten's Guide, which came out about a year later, one of my favorite Wizards of the books that came out from Wizards of the Coast was 256 pages with the new font size. So it's fewer words and significantly fewer pages right i mean what let's do some math 256 divided by 320 80 percent, right so it's 80 percent of the book size that's not significant but that's 80 percent if you assume the same font size at a different font size it's probably like 65 maybe 65 percent. so it's already we already saw some shrinkflation just there fizzband's treasury of dragons down to 224 pages this is the one that came out last year Right, came out about a year after Van Richten's guide came out, focused on dragons, and it's 224 pages, which is another 224 divided by 256. Math, 87%, right? So we're seeing a 13% decrease in the size of the book between those two books. And again, they're all staying at the same price. Like these are all these are all 50 bucks. Now Big Bees is coming out. Now I'm not hundred percent sure this is accurate, but Amazon.com has it listed at 192 pages. That Big Bees is going to be 192. 192. We do 192 divided by 320, the size of the Eberron book. It is 60% of the size. And that's not including the bigger font size. So it's like half the book that Eberron was. And it's significant. Even if you look at Van Richten's guide, again, my favorite, I loved Van Richten's guide. I thought it was excellent. Math, math is hard. 75% of the size of Van Richten's guide, which is only two years old. So not only are the prices going up by 10 bucks? The size of the book has already dropped by about half. So not only are you pay, you're not just paying 20% more, you're paying 20% more for half the words that you were getting from books that were sold only three years ago. Now, what bugs me about that? That's not even about the money. It's not even about the half. It's about the idea that when they do a book like this, this is it. When they do a book about giants, for for you know for big bees that's the only one we're going to get for 10 years or more when's the next time you think we're going to see another book about giants that is published by wizards of the coast you know could be 20 years so one of the things i was talking with some friends of mine about one of the things that really bugs me about like when we look at Spelljammer and we look at some of the other books that they're putting out particularly when they don't hit the mark i felt Spelljammer really didn't hit the mark when Spelljammer didn't hit the mark, not only was it a, was it bad for the product, and for my, in my opinion, right? Maybe you got it, maybe you love it. Great, then you don't have to listen to me rant. I got it. I ran the adventure and I like the adventure, but now it's going to sit on my shelf. I'm never going to open it again because there's no source book. There's nothing for me to use for a long-term campaign. There's nothing for me to build a bunch of adventures like Eberron where I could pull that book off the shelf and come up with a new campaign every week. Van Richten's Guide, I could pull off my shelf, come up, there's like 30 or 40 campaign ideas in that book that I can run with. There's nothing, there's nothing like that. When they put out a book like that, that is the only one that's going to come out maybe ever. That Spelljammer book, the last time... So when Wizards of the Coast put out Spelljammer, the last Spelljammer book that had been published by Wizards of the Coast, which wasn't even Wizards of the Coast. Wizards of the Coast has never published a Spelljammer product, right? For one, Wizards has never done one before. The last time a Spelljammer product was released was 1993. Thanks to Walt APR for doing that little bit of research. It was 1993. 30 years ago was the last Spelljammer product. It could, you know, does that mean it'll be 30 years before we before we see another Spelljammer product? Maybe, right? I mean, it could be a long time, but we can look at it. And this is one thing where me and my little sewing circle of other designers who were arguing about it on Friday, 
I asked them, I said, when do we think they'll ever do another Spelljammer product? And they were all like, never, right? Probably never, maybe never. And that means that was it. That was their shot, right? They had one shot to do a good Spelljammer book and that was what we got and it's done. Big Bees is kind of the same way. It's a book about giants, so it's not exactly a campaign book. But when do you think is the next time we're going to see a book dedicated to giants that was published by Wizards of the Coast? Maybe never. Maybe this is it. This might be the only one. There are plenty of times where they take a book and they only do one. Dragons, they'll probably do another dragon book, but probably not every five years. It might be 10 years before we see another dragon book, which means every time we see a book like this and every time it comes out, that is their only opportunity to make that kind of book. When the Planescape box set comes out later this year, that is going to be our only take on Planescape for maybe a decade, maybe longer. Who knows how long it's going to be? But you're probably not going to take another shot at it. They're probably not going to do another Planescape campaign guide in five years, right? They've already got that one. That was it. So my problem with the shrinkflation of these books is if they're cutting costs by making the books smaller, by making the page count smaller, by increasing the font size, it's not about the money. It's not about the fact that I have to pay 60 bucks for a book that's 50% of what I was getting for 50 bucks three years ago, which, you know, you can be mad about that, right? That's, that's something to be mad about. It's the lost opportunity of all of that material that never got published and never will be published. That if instead of a Planescape box set, that's, I think that one's 250 six pages i think they said it's two 96 page books and a 64 page book 96 plus 96 plus 64 yeah so the the planescape box set is going to be 256 pages so that's pretty decent but what's the material that didn't make it in there because they said that we have to do a 64 page monster book instead of a 32 page monster book because we're doing three separate books that could have been 32 pages we could have added the campaign guide you're not likely to see a 320 page planescape campaign guide come out maybe ever that is their only chance to get planescape right that was our only chance to get spelljammer right and it's that lost opportunity that really bothers me you know that they, when they looked at these and they said we got we want to do a box set for for spelljammer how are we going to accomplish this well we can't make a 320 page book if it's going to be a box set we're not going to be able to do that so they stripped it down to 192 pages three different 64 page books and that's it and there's no campaign guide in there they didn't have room for it which means we're done like Spelljammer was done and the other bear about this is wizards is the only company that can do that Right. With all this other stuff, Giants is actually not so bad because anybody, I could go write a book about Giants if I wanted to. Right. Cobalt Press could write a book about Giants. None of Giant. The, the idea of doing a book of Giant lore is not independent to Wizards of the Coast. We all can do it. Same with Dragons. You could do your own Dragon book if you wanted to. You could do a really cool Dragon book and you make it huge. You could make a, you know, crown of the crown of the Oathbreaker sized book about dragons if you wanted to. Right. You go like, I'm going to make a thousand page book. I'm going to go bankrupt but I'm going to make a thousand page book about giants. You can do that, right? But when it comes to their dedicated IP, when it comes to Planescape and Spelljammer and Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms and Eberron, they are the only company that can do it. That is the actual, and it's not a monopoly. It's their IP. I don't blame them for having their IP, but they, in my opinion, and what I'm asking, right, is I really want them to pay a lot of attention and really you know, not try to nitpick about the dollars or whether or not they can make it a box set so they can sell it in Walmart and focus on making the best book that they can for that subject that really can can benefit DMs and GMs for decades because they're the only one that can. So that's my real rant about the price changes. It's not about the 10 bucks. It's not even really about the page count loss. It's about the lost opportunity that these books have when they are stripped down to their core, when they're dropped down to 192 pages because of dollars. And that's all we're ever going to get. So that thus ends my, thus ends my rant. Let's do questions from the Patreon Q&A. Every month I put up a thread on the Sly Flourish Patreon where people, patrons can come and ask RPG related questions. Every Friday morning, I get a nice coffee. I sit down and after a nice breakfast and I sit and I answer every single question that comes up on the Patreon Q&A. Some of them I take and I bring here to talk about on the show. Other ones actually become articles or videos that I put out on other Sly Flourish mediums. So Rigoberto says there are a lot of great resources and ideas for enhancing your game. I'll often read ideas for house rules, systems, and procedures and want to try them out in my campaign. I don't want to overwhelm my players or even myself by constantly throwing in new ways to run initiative or another procedure for doing overland travel. How much tinkering do you think is too much? So bringing too many things at once is too much. And you mentioned that. 
There are some good tricks for bringing in new ideas, new house rules, ideas you've picked up from other games and things that you want to bring in. The two biggest tricks that I can offer, I'm going to break these down to two types of tricks. One, only bring in one new thing at a time. Bring something in, bring it to your players, talk to them about what it is and how it works, drop it into your game, let it run for a couple of sessions. Don't try to bring in two or three different things. If you're going to try a new way of handling overland travel and you want to give roles to people for overland travel or you want to use some kind of resource management thing maybe that you picked up from level up advanced 5e and you want to try try one thing at a time when you're bringing it to them the flip side is anytime you have the opportunity to try things behind your dn screen you can go with the gods you can do whatever you want because the, the player you're not really affecting the players maybe the game feels different to them but if you want to try a different approach to say you want to go from rolling monster damage to using static damage you can just do that you don't have to ask permission you don't have to tell them even necessarily what you're doing they might notice so an example was i really I, i've been using static monster damage for years ever since i played 13th age and pretty much m most of fifth edition i've been using static monster damage but i've heard people talk about the variance in damage and i've seen players that are like oh you know he does 12 every round and they kind of joke that he does 12 every round so i've been doing the chris perkins trick of subtracting three and adding 1d6 this is also an option that we offer in forge of foes and the idea is very simple. If a monster does 15 damage, you subtract three, so it's 12, and then you roll 1d6 and add that. So you do 12, 1d6 plus 12 for 15. And it gives just a little sway of the variance. Well, I could just do that behind the screen. I don't have to tell the players anything. I could just try it. And I could try it once and see if it works. I can ignore it. I can go back and forth and try it. And that works fine. It's funny. I've had two players that both were sitting to my left when I was doing that. And they would look over because they'd watch me roll my dice because I roll in the open. And I'd roll it and it rolls a four. And I'd be like, 27. I'm mean, like, he does, you know, and I roll a four. And I say, 27. He's like, how do you get 27 damage from rolling a four? Like, what are you doing? And I was like, it's 23 minus you know you know it's 23 minus 1d6 and like oh okay and i said i'm adding a little bit of variance to it just enough variance that you can't quite predict exactly how much damage is going to be done but i only after only ever have to roll a, d, a single d6 and they got it but we were laughing about it because i was like you know i'd roll and it's like a three and a big 192 you know and so it was very funny but my point is you can do stuff behind the dm screen all you want but you probably don't want to drop a whole lot on your player. So instead, try to bring out just like one thing at a time when you're affecting how players play the game. Let it go for a little while. See how it goes. Ask them how it goes. But behind the screen, you can do lots of different things to try different ways out behind the screen during your prep, during your play, during your improvisation. You can try lots of different stuff. Try a Forge of Foes generic stat block rather than using the monster manual. See how it feels. Players aren't even going to know. David P says in the past you've written about dials to turn for monsters but how do you dial up or down magic items I can't find a formula for making existing magic items stronger or weaker do you have ideas or suggestions yeah so there's a couple of interesting things about magic items one is obviously like if it's a magic weapon you can do plus one plus two plus three up to plus three same with armor and if you're hitting these higher stages of uncommon rare and, and very rare you can plus one plus two plus three another one is a tying spell effects to them this is a cheat that I've done for a while I've heard I actually heard Wolfgang criticize this idea as the spell stick, right? That you essentially are giving a, a an item to somebody that's a spell stick. I don't take the criticism because I'm like, that's a good lazy technique. And if you think about it, every spell description you have in any of your spell books, whether it's the ones that are just like in the player's handbook or whether it's books from like Deep Magic, every one of those spells is its own little interesting mechanic that you can tie to an item. If you want to make a more powerful one, you can look at an item and say, what's a first level spell that you could use once a day on this? What is a third level spell you could use once a day on this? What's a seventh level spell you could use once a day on this? I really like adding an, a magic spell to an item that's usable one time per day the nice thing about one time per day is they're not going to break the game if they have a bunch of encounters they can really only use it once but you could also put like a cantrip or even like a level one or level two spell on an item that they could do at will when they've reached a certain level so the idea of adding spells to magic items is something i really really like it's a great way to make weapons more powerful you can very easily make these sort of like legacy weapons these weapons that get better as players accomplish quests or as they reach higher level 
you can make add new spells. You could say the first spell is this, then it expands to this, then it expands to this. And also because spells are so varied, there's so many of them. If you include like the deep magic spells from Cobalt Press, there's like a thousand spells. There are so many spells. You can often find a theme. So you can say like maybe it's a, a weapon that does cold stuff. You can find a low level cold spell. You can find a higher level cold spell and an even higher level cold spell. And those spell the cold, you know, the, the, the ability to use uh, cold damage goes up. So there isn't a good dial necessarily. Obviously, the easy dial is plus one, plus two, plus three, and com- uncommon, rare, very rare. But I really like that if you want to make unique magic items that you also want to have some scale, variance, and power, look at spells and look at the levels of the spells and then add a spell ability to an item and let it reset, you know, usable once and then resets at the next on. That one works really well for me. PhD20 says, do you think there's any value in operating from physical tools for online games? You've talked about how you use paper notes at the table and how often the physical tools, be it notes, dice, etc., is often easier than digital. Curious if you think any of that can improve online games for game masters. It's interesting. I really find most of the online tools are actually easier to use than stuff that I use physically. The only one that isn't is dice. So I really find that rolling dice at the table and I, I have a nice dice set. I have two different dice sets sitting right here in front of me. And even if I'm playing online, I like to roll my own dice. I just like rolling dice. It's fun. And I tell players like roll dice. And one thing I've seen that was really interesting is that players who roll dice physically when they're playing online are faster at figuring out their math than the ones that are rolling online. Unless unless they're using something like a tool like D&D Beyond where it does all the math for you. That's pretty quick. But I've seen people who are trying to use like Avre or they, if we're not using D&D Beyond and they're trying to use some kind of online dice roller with like a physical character, it can get complicated very quickly. So unless you're fully integrated with an online system like either D&D Beyond or Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds or Foundry or whatever, and you're rolling dice in there, generally I find that dice rolling in physical is better. Really, there aren't, for me personally, and I, I, you know, I'm pretty conscious of like, if there's a tool that will work better for me, I almost always try to go embrace that tool. I don't really use any other physical tools when I'm running my online game other than rolling dice. I find that to work really well. So one of the things that's been a big shock for me is going from all in-person play to all online play and now a hybrid of both in-person and online is how much harder it has been for me to get back to going into in-person play. I love it more. I really enjoy playing in person, but I really had to like rebuild and and think about what tools I have available. And I have a little tackle box with my pencils and my set of miniatures for the game and like generic minis. If I need something to represent it, I got to have like my physical tool set up a certain way. And it was actually a little bit of shock for me to get back into that system. John P says, when initially making my homebrew world, I created a pantheon of gods modeled after the cleric domains. That's a fine start, fine way to go. I was relatively new DM and thought that was a good place to start. You were correct. All the world building was a bit rushed at the beginning, so we could start filling out the worlds as the adventures. Well, adventure, adventures adventured. Basically making all the rookie mistakes up front with the pitfalls of being a new DM. I don't think so far you sound like you're doing great. That, make, that being said, I'm stuck with a pretty boring pantheon. A few gods have been encountered, but I'm trying to figure out how to keep the pantheon looser or introduce new gods without some catastrophic event thoughts yeah one interesting thing is the way midgard handles gods the cobalt press midgard setting has this idea called masks and the idea for masks is that the gods actually have sort of different masks and different ways that other people worship them so orcus for example as sort of like a demon prince of undeath might have a mask as a, a whole other new god that you might not know about and people worship him as this god but it turns out it's actually orcus underneath and so you can do that with all of the gods so you could go like midgard you could have regions where people have a different god of light than Pelor, for example but they go and they have their god of light and their god of light is different but it's actually a mask for Pelor. you can also just come up with new gods and the lazy dm's companion has a chart for i think it's a god generator i think we have a god generator where you can come up with fun names and come up with pantheons and come up with tricks and appearances and weird symbols and things like that so if you're looking for a god generator check out the lazy dm's companion it has a god generator in there if just to get your brain thinking about new weird gods but the other one is the pantheon can be infinite too you can have as many new gods as you want so even if you have like your core gods that you put out there so that your your, the characters had a pantheon that they could deal with when when because they're a cleric you can always just add more gods also regions can have different gods so rather even you could do masks like midgard does or you could just have different gods and even the forgotten realms had this the forgotten realms had different regions of the world had different gods that the people worshiped there the maharati i think it was maharati empire in the south had a whole different set of gods than the the gods of like the the northerny sort of more European thing, which is actually kind of fits what Midgard does as well, that depending on the region of the mid area of Midgard are gods that are more similar to the gods we've had on earth, like the, 
you know, Middle Eastern gods in the South and like the Northern gods, the Norse gods in the North and stuff like that. So that, you know, hopefully those are a few ideas. The mask idea is really fun. You can of course take all of the demon prints and kind of reskin them in different ways. And of course just grab other source books, you know, and, and take a look at how they're doing gods and, and pick up what works, but don't beat yourself up. You look like you're doing a great job. Everything you said there is all what I would recommend and I wouldn't worry about it. And I've, I bet you your players are having fun and I wouldn't worry about it. I bet your gods, I bet your players are not like, oh, these gods are so boring. Probably not. Stellar X says a couple of weeks back, you warned against the dangers of getting too dependent on any single online tool for running RPGs. Yes, I talk about this a lot. However, your own recent sessions, you are not following your own advice, Mike Shea. However, your own recent session prep videos appear increasingly reliant on Notion. I concur that using Notion is tremendously flexible and works great. But what is your plan B? Should Notion buy the farm? Obsidian. Uh, Obsidian, lots of people, lots of friends of mine, lots of people in the Sly Flourish Discord server use Obsidian instead of Notion. And I might have used Obsidian if I wasn't already so wired into Notion. But Obsidian is a tremendously powerful tool that does note-taking. It's a bit more open than Notion is because all of your data is stored as Markdown. It's really, Obsidian is a really fine tool. So my backup, by my plan B is Notion. The other thing I do is in Notion is every time I'm done with a campaign, I export it to HTML. So I have a full set of all of the text of my campaign saved locally on my machine so if notion buys the farm i have all of my notes and i have all of my all of my previous older campaigns so i have like an archive of them so i would use obsidian and even a plan c is i go back to using markdown notes like i'm sure there are other tools that are not necessarily as powerful as obsidian but i was writing my notes in markdown for a long time and that worked really well and i could go back to just local files in markdown and i it would kind of suck right it would not be as great but i i feel like that however there's another interesting angle in your conversation which is there's another tool that I am very dependent on that isn't like D&D Beyond, and that's Discord. I love Discord, and I use Discord all the time, and if Discord went away, I don't know what I would do. There are definitely other applications that we could use for running a game. I would probably end up using something like Zoom, but people are talking about using Skype, Slack, WhatsApp. So there's other collaboration tools. I don't think there's anything that has that good mixture of A, being easy to use, good audio video capabilities, and like a persistent channel where you can sort of drop in text that stays there even after you've left the area. I think that's a really powerful collaboration tool. Discord is great. I really hope it doesn't buy the farm. I really hope it doesn't go down a dark road. It's big and it's expensive and, you know, who knows, they might try to do a public trade and then suddenly I got shareholders. So... I'm going to say a dirty word, but it could follow Cory Doctorow's enshittification process. If you're not familiar with the idea of enshittification, I'll put a link to the what enshittification does in the show notes below. It would really suck if they went down the enshittification road and then we'd have to find another tool. So Discord, I think I am more dependent upon than I am on Notion or any other tool. But of course, D&D Beyond for fifth edition games is still where I'm, 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 mostly, I'm mostly worried. How are we on time? How long has the video been recording? Hour and 16 minutes, probably long enough. Friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today while we have talked about all things in RPGs. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You get a weekly RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox, plus a free Adventure Generator PDF. You can also join the Sly Flourish Patreon, getting access to the Patreon Q&A the dedicated discord server we've got a bunch of exclusive adventures tools ways to make your game easier ways to ways to become a better lazy dm and also a bunch of video previews all for becoming a patron or you can pick up my books the lazy dm's companion the lazy dm workbook and return of the lazy dungeon master plus any of my other pdfs are available on the sly flourish bookstore links to all of those are in the show notes below thank you all very much have a great day and get out there and play an rpg